I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So this is the very heart of Christianity. What is it that we've got to believe? Paul said, of first importance, what I delivered to you was this, that Christ Jesus died for our sins. Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and he was raised. So if you're going to talk about the gospel, you've got to talk about what Jesus did for our sins. You've got to. He dealt with them, but you've got to say more than that, don't you? If you just tell someone, hey, Jesus died for your sins, they may be able to do a lot with that. They can add it to their current worldview or religion, but it doesn't mean they understand the full significance of the gospel. If you want to explain the gospel, there's a lot of other things you've got to explain, like what is sin? You tell someone Jesus died for their sins, they'd be like, what is sin? You've got to talk about who God is if you're going to do that because sin is against him. You've got to answer questions like, what was Jesus dying for as it relates to our sin? And how do I receive it? And so what we're going to do over the next four weeks is we're going to provide a framework for you to make sure you know the gospel and you're able to communicate it with other people. There are four words that we're going to give you guys over the next four weeks so that you can explain the gospel to someone. It's God, man, Christ, response. God, man, Christ, response. You need to talk about God if you're going to explain the good news to someone. And you need to talk about why we're separated from him. That's what we mean when we talk about man. You have to talk about what Jesus has done if someone's going to be saved. And then response. How should they respond? God, man, Christ, response. I want you to remember these four words. This is just one framework for you to be able to explain the gospel. Week by week, over these next four weeks, we're going to focus on one at a time. We're going to share the whole gospel each time, but we're going to focus on God this week, man next week, Christ the week after that, and our response in the last week. So the way we're going to do it tonight as we talk about God is we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 40. So Luke opened with Isaiah chapter 40. That's what we're going to look at together. We're going to look through most of the chapter, verses 9 through 31. And the reason we want to do this, this passage in particular, is because it describes the greatness of God. If you walk through Isaiah 40, it describes a huge, transcendent, glorious, awesome God. And that's what we need to see. That's what people we share the gospel with need to see. The other reason we're going to look at Isaiah 40 is because this passage explicitly mentions that this is good news. So you'll see, look at verse 9 with me. If you've got a Bible, it'll help if you've got it open because you can see context, but it'll be on the screen as well. Verse 9, look at what Isaiah says. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold 
your God. So Isaiah is saying, this is the good news that I'm about to declare. And what does he start with in his good news? Behold your God. He begins his presentation of the good news by showing us what God is like. He's saying, look at God. Behold your God. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through these next several verses and see what Isaiah says God is like. This is how Isaiah starts his gospel. So I'm, gonna, I'm going to list off things that this passage says about God one at a time, and we're going to see it in the text. So here we go. Here's the first thing we see in Isaiah chapter 40. God is a mighty judge. Verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. So this is saying God is mighty, he's strong, and he's bringing reward and recompense. That means he's a judge. A lot of times when we think about judges, we think about an old man or woman sitting behind a desk, That's what we think about as a judge. This is not a judge like that. This is like an Old Testament judge, a mighty warrior. That's what God is coming like. And he's going to bring reward for faithfulness and recompense payback for those who have not been faithful. Know this. You need to know this. God is a judge. God will judge every one of us in this room. Me, you, every person who has ever lived, God will judge their secret thoughts, their secret feelings, and all their deeds. All of us will have to stand before him and his perfect holiness. If you're going to explain the gospel to someone, if you're going to know it yourself, you've got to get this. We are all going to stand before his judgment, and that's a terrifying thing. We're going to see more about that next week when we talk about mankind. God is a mighty judge. Here's the second thing we see. He's a gentle shepherd. Verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He'll carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So not only is he a mighty judge, a mighty warrior, bringing reward and recompense with him, but for those who are his people, he's gentle. This is saying God is like a shepherd who carries the lambs in his arms. He's like a shepherd who's careful with those sheep who have young and are vulnerable. That's what God is like if you know him. That's how he'll shepherd you, church, if you trust him. Three, God dwarfs creation. So when I say God dwarfs creation, what I mean is that next to his greatness, creation is very small. Verse 12, who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, 
and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. So this is saying in the hollow of God's hand, I don't know how much water you can fit in the hollow of your hand, but this is saying God can fit all the water on the planet in the palm of his hand without any spilling out. There are, in our oceans, 340 million trillion gallons of water. So if you get 340 million gallons of water, that's one big container, 340 million gallons in one container. If you get a trillion of those, that's how much water is in the ocean and God can hold it in the palm of his hand. This is saying that the heavens, the stars, sky above us, galaxy, universe, God's measured with a span. A span is the distance between your thumb and your pinky finger. That's how massive God is. The universe fits in the span of his hand. He can gather dust, mountains, hills in a measuring cup, and he can weigh them. This is who God is. He's not just a little bit bigger version of you. He's not like the Greeks thought of Zeus, who's a good bit stronger than us and sits on a mountain somewhere. This is saying our God fits mountains in his teaspoon. He's immense. He's a massive God. Here's the fourth thing we see. He knows everything. Verses 13 and 14. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? And taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding. God knows everything. That means God has never learned anything. He knows it. He's never forgotten anything. He doesn't take a second to make calculations or to recall something. All knowledge is before him at any moment, and he comprehends it all. That's who God is. You and me will never know 1% of all that can be known. But God knows it all. And this is why the Bible tells us, don't lean on your own understanding. You know a fraction, a teeny tiny fraction of what can be known, and God knows it all. In fact, all knowledge comes from his mind and nowhere else. That's who our God is. He knows all things. Now, look at verse 14 closer. Do you see who taught him the path of justice? That's a rhetorical question, which means the answer is, no one. No one taught God what justice is. And that's the fifth thing we're going to see about God, is God himself is the standard of right and wrong. Because if you, you ask yourself, okay, where do right and wrong come from? Where do good and evil come from? Was God given a list? A long time ago, God was given a list 
of good things and bad things so that God can then judge what's good and bad. He's got a list, and so he knows, oh, okay, well, murder is wrong, so I'll punish murder, and I'll, you know, reward people who preserve life. No. That's not what happened. Right is whatever honors God. That's the definition of good. Evil, wrong, is whatever dishonors God. There is no list outside of God that he consults as to what justice is. His existence defines what it is. And this is really important for us to understand. You know, God doesn't punish murder because he looks at a list that says murder is wrong, and he goes, okay, well, I guess I better do something about this. Murder is wrong because, ultimately, because it dishonors God by destroying his image that he's put in us. That's what makes it evil. This is a way of reorienting the way you think about right and wrong, isn't it? Right and wrong only has meaning in relation to our relationship with God. God is the standard of right and wrong. He's supremely valuable. Luke read these verses earlier. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, the forests of Lebanon, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. So scales, I don't know if you know how old scales worked, but they were basically two platforms on either side of a balance. You could put a weight on one, it would go down, and the other side would go up. You could put another weight on the other side, it would balance out. Isaiah is saying, if you put God on one side of a scale, and then you put every nation of this world, all its people, all its culture, all its art, all its architecture, all its accomplishments on the other side of the scale in order to see which is more valuable, it's like dust. In fact, verse 17 says, compared to him, all the nations and all that they have to boast about are less than nothing and emptiness. God has the most weight. Luke hit on this last week. He has the most weight, as in the most value in all the universe. Let's value God this way. This is crucial. This is really what conversion is. If you think about what does it mean to be brought from death to life, it means you used to value other things, probably yourself, more than anything else. And God changes you when you hear the gospel so that you see, no, 
God is more valuable than everything else combined. That's what it means to be a Christian. Let's value God that way. You can invest everything, every bit of your life into anything and everything but God, and you will have nothing compared to knowing him and having nothing else. He's supremely valuable. He has no equal. Luke read these verses as well. Verse 18 through 22. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol. Oops that will not move. Verse 21, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understand, understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. This is saying, listen, God is not like anything in creation. He spreads out the heavens and everything underneath it. He's above it all. So don't try to make some image from creation to describe what he's like. There is absolutely nothing like God. Verse 25 says the same thing. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. He's unique. There are no so-called gods from any religion of the world that's anything like our God. Satan is not his equal. No one is. Everything else is on one side, and on the other side is God. There's no one like him. He holds life in his hands. Verses 23 and 24. He brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. He holds life in his hands. Vladimir Putin will be gone very soon. That's what this text is saying. Every ruler, every king, every prince, no matter how great you look right now, you will be dead soon. Everyone who's alive on this planet, their life is in God's hand. And this is saying people are like plants. They just start to take root before they are blown away. And this text says that God is the one who does it. He is not disconnected from your life. I hope you see that. Your very life is held in his hand. He holds it all. God powers, this is the next thing we're going to see, he powers the stars. Verse 26, lift up your eyes on high and see 
Who created these? He's talking about stars. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Okay? God's power is what sustains the stars. Do you guys know what an atomic bomb is? An atomic explosion. The biggest bomb that's ever been exploded on planet Earth was exploded in 1961 in Russia. It's called the Tsar Bomba. And it would take two billion of those explosions, two billion, to equal the sun's explosions every second. Two billion of the biggest bombs that have ever been exploded on this planet, two billion every second for our star, the sun. And there are two billion trillion stars. Consider this, two billion atomic explosions every second 200 billion times. Trillion. And God sustains them all by his power every single moment. I don't know if that's too big for you to wrap your mind around, but it is for me. That's who our God is. He's everlasting. Verse 28. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God? So when this text says that he's everlasting, it means he never gets old. He is. He was never made. He is. He will never stop being. He is. And there is only one being that that can be said of, God the one who is and makes all things to be, which is the next point. He's the creator. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. This again is crucial. When we are talking about who God is with other people and we're explaining that he's a judge and we'll all stand before him, that hinges on the fact that he made all things. He made everything that exists. He designed it. He gets to say what it's for, what its purpose is. He's the maker of it all, which means it all belongs to him. And we will give an account for what he's made. He does not get tired. Do you see that? The end of verse 28, he does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. It's just saying, God doesn't get exhausted. Are any of you tired? Yes. God has never been exhausted physically or mentally. He never tires. And this leads to the last thing we're going to see about God is that he's gracious. Because God has all power, knows all things, and is overflowing so that he can't get less of what he has. He never tires. He never diminishes. 
he can be gracious. He's gracious. Verse 29, he gives power to the faint. So he doesn't get faints, but he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. God is not just massive. He's not just big and terrifying and awesome and mind-blowing in his might. He's also the kind of God who gives. This is actually how God shows off just how big he is. It is not by you or me coming to God with a big offering. We do some great work. We give God some big gift to honor him. That's not how God looks great. Because if God is the one who never runs out of resources and cannot, the way he shows it is by giving to people who do again and again and again and again. And the way we honor this great, massive, awesome God is by receiving and thanking and asking for more and receiving and thanking. Salvation, the good news of the gospel, is not that we do one single thing to save ourselves. It is that God shows he is the gracious one who provides everything from first to last in our forgiveness and in the strength to follow him and worship him as he is. He's the one who provides because he's gracious. You were made to worship the God of Isaiah 40. That's what I hope you see. I, I hope that as we walk away from Isaiah 40, it has been proven to you or shown to you that you are not the most precious thing in the universe. God is. And you were made to worship his greatness. Like I said before, that's what conversion is. That's what it means to be a Christian. If you think about your life as a planet, we are born and we live our lives thinking that everything else revolves around us. All of life orbits around us, including God. Yeah, I'm fine adding Jesus to my life so long as he helps me be the center of the universe, which I already was before. Conversion, becoming a Christian, is when you see God is the center of the universe, and all my life should be given to worshiping and revolving around his greatness. This is why sin cannot just simply be a list of things we do or don't do. It's the entire relationship of your life to God because there are lots of people who don't know God who are nice husbands and nice fathers and nice mothers and kind people to strangers but they're the center of their universe. That's what sin is. And conversion is seeing this God, that he has all the value and treasure. And Jesus, in the gospel, what he does 
is he brings us back to this God. This is 1 Peter 3.18. Peter says this, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. That's what Jesus was doing. He was bringing us to this one, Isaiah 40, so that we might know him and live for him. That's what Jesus has done in the gospel. He brings us to God. Listen, you might make more converts if the gospel you share is that Jesus will bring you cars and money and houses. Lots of people will sign up for that. The thing is, is they won't be converted to Christianity. They won't be brought to God. And that's what Jesus does. So God, man, Christ response. That's where we're going these next four weeks. They're signposts. They're ways for us to be clear about what the gospel is. And we want to start with God. In our own hearts, we want to see he's the one this whole universe is about. And my life was made to revolve around his greatness and to worship him. And the question for you is, is he the treasure of your universe? Is he the thing that holds the greatest weight that your life revolves around? And for the lost, they need to see that God is the the treasure that we've lost. He's the treasure we've lost. And he's what Christ brings us to. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for what you've done. We have lived for ourselves when, God, you are the great one. Infinite might beyond our understanding. Immensity in your greatness. And yet you are gentle and gracious, and we have rejected you. Thank you, Jesus, the righteous for the unrighteous, that in your death and resurrection you bring us to God. Oh, I pray for those in here who don't really know you, who are still the center of their universe, that you would work and rescue them in your grace. And for those who do, for those of us who do know you, would we rejoice and remember with gladness that there is nothing like you, no one like you, no one great, no one worthy of all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Help us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.